Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of the Quiet Mark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at Quiet Mark. And Quiet Mark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. In past episodes of the QuietMark podcast, we've discussed at length the well-being benefits of improved acoustics in the built environment, how it can speed up recovery in hospitals, improve exam results in classrooms, raise productivity in the workspace, or enable you to enjoy a good night's sleep at home. But in today's episode, we're going to focus more on the health risks of noise pollution and the latest developments in mobile and wearable technologies, which are empowering us all to address the issue and do something about it. To discuss this on today's show, our guest is Rick Neitzel, full professor of environmental health sciences and global public health at University of Michigan. A previous guest on our podcast, Ramune Batiscata from Spec Matters, kindly recently got in touch, suggesting Poppy Skeeler, Quietmark's CEO co-founder, as a guest for a forthcoming ULI Health Leaders Network podcast focusing on the connections between noise exposure, health, and the built environment. Poppy did that recording last month, October 2022, and immediately after doing so, called me enthusiastically, saying, Simon, I've just done a podcast with Rick Neitzel, and his knowledge on the health impacts of noise pollution is amazing. Let's invite him onto our show to discuss it, which we did, and I'm pleased to say he kindly accepted the invitation, and as you'll hear, he's an absolute authority on the subject of noise pollution, how it endangers our health, and the financial cost burdens it brings to society. So, without further ado, let's welcome Rick to the show. So, welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you so much, Simon. It's a tremendous pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And where is here for you? Here is Ann Arbor, Michigan in the United States. I'm at the University of Michigan School of Public Health where I work. And the sun's shining on your face on our Zoom call there. It looks like it's a nice day over there. We are having a nice day. Winter is coming, but we'll take a a lovely fall day anytime. (laughs) Well, like I say, thanks for coming to the show. And you recently met QuietMark CEO and founder Poppy Skeeler when you were both invited to guest on another podcast, uh, the ULI Health Leaders Network podcast, which focused on the connection between noise exposure, health and the built environment. Other guests on that show included Eulalia Paris of the European Environment Agency and QuietMark podcast episode two guest Ethan Bordeaux of the International Wellbuilding. Institute. For more than a year, you have been full professor of environmental health sciences and global public health at University of Michigan, a world-renowned public institution fostering excellence for all, where you've worked for over 11 years. So please share more about your role. And given the topic of this and the ULI show, tell us more about how noise exposure affects our health. As you say, I have been here at the University of Michigan for 11 years now. It's amazing how fast the time goes in a blink of an eye. Uh, I am an occupational hygienist by training, so much of my career has focused on keeping workers safe and healthy over their working career, whether they be here in the U.S. or anywhere around the globe. Um, But I will say my research for much of my career has focused on a hazard that has been almost uniformly ignored, at least uh, in comparison to other pollutants in the environment, and that is noise exposure in the workplace. So noise is something that I think many, if not all of us recognize can certainly cause damage to our ears if it's at a high enough level. 
But what we're recognizing increasingly uh, from a, a very rapidly growing body of literature over the past several decades is that hearing loss might just be the tip of the iceberg from noise. We're now understanding that excessive noise exposure is linked to things like cardiovascular disease, hypertension, ischemic heart disease, myocardial infarction or heart attack, uh, mental health and, and cognitive impacts. So if we think about hearing loss, that's a tremendously debilitating condition, um, but it typically doesn't cause death. Uh, now that we're recognizing that noise could actually lead to cardiovascular uh, mortality, I think we're, we're starting to recognize that we're not giving this pollutant enough attention and really need to focus on it more. That's very true. And in fact, it's famously said that noise is often overlooked because it is invisible. But if you could see noise in our loudest city, I heard someone, I think it was the New York Times saying it would look like plastic litter strewn all over the place. You wouldn't accept it. There's a tendency with noise when it gets too loud for people to just say, well, that's just New York. New York's a loud city and they kind of just tolerate and put up with it and almost expect it. But of course, with the advent of the smartphone, and the smartwatch, there are now new technologies that are making noise visible. We spoke with Gregory Scott, who's the founder of the Soundprint app, which enables users to select restaurants and venues based on how loud they are. And I know that you were involved in the Apple Hearing Project, right, for the iWatch, was that, is that correct? Yeah, I actually serve as the principal investigator for the Apple Hearing Study. So this is a, a nationwide study in the United States where we are measuring uh, volunteer participants' sound exposures. We're, for the first time ever, measuring their sound from their headphones that they use, which has been sort of a, a, a constantly shifting target in terms of understanding those exposures. And we're also assessing the impacts of those sound on people's hearing by having them taking uh, hearing uh, tests basically using an app developed by Apple. So we're extremely excited about this study. We have over 150,000 participants now, and we are studying these folks over uh, several years to try to understand, again, what are the impacts of their exposures to sound in the environment. I will say I've also published a number of studies, um, not just sort of reporting the measures of app-based uh, tests like these, but actually validating their performance in the laboratory. So one of the things we always need to be uh, cognizant of is, great, I've got an app on my phone. Does it work like it says it works? Mm. And we uh, discovered that some apps, in fact, don't work particularly well, but the right app and phone combination can actually make measurements that are almost as accurate as a, a specifically designed commercial sound measurement device. So that's very encouraging to me, and it allows you and I and all of us to become essentially citizen scientists and contribute data to uh, studies like ours. That's great because I've had notifications on my phone, for example. Um, when I'm listening to a podcast or when I cycle or, or whatever that say you might want to think about turning down the volume and I get a little notification and it does prompt me and I do turn that down. Is that part of the invention that came from the study? And do you, how do you see this developing? Do you think it's going to become something that everyone starts to really monitor? People are monitoring their plastic usage. Um, they're monitoring their carbon footprint, you know, choosing to take trains rather than fly. Are we going to get to that level with... Um, exposure to noise? Well, the short answer is I hope we do. I very much hope we do. The uh, prompts that you're getting on your Apple Watch don't come from our study. Those are actually uh, prompts that have been developed uh, in uh, collaboration with the World Health Organization and other manufacturers sort of getting together and deciding how do we want to give feedback to our users 
effect. I will say as a person who studied exposures for most of my uh, career, it's a little bit frustrating to sort of document that people are consistently exposed to levels of noise that are too high, potentially damaging to their health without having a mechanism to kind of inform them, hey, you've got a problem. You really need to change your behavior. So those feedback mechanisms like the messages that you're getting on your watch, I think are a game changer because for the first time, we're now empowering the public, not just to measure and understand their exposures, but to get cues that, hey, you know, you should consider changing your behavior here because you're putting your ears and potentially your heart at risk. So I love the idea of these messages. In fact, part of the Apple hearing study is to try to understand what is the impact of cues like that on people's behavior. So as you say, uh, someone like yourself or me who might be pretty focused on, on noise and sound, if we see that prompt, we're probably going to act on it. But does a member of the regular public do that? Mm. That's a question we want to answer with our study. We've randomized people into different arms of the study, some of whom will get those prompts more regularly. They'll also be prompted to review their exposure data, and others of whom will just live their lives as they would normally. So I'm, mm. I'm hoping that we can demonstrate that this messaging really does have an impact on people's behavior for the better. I think it will. It's interesting. I'm watching the advert currently for the uh, the latest iWatch, and it's all strides and swim strokes, uh, and it can measure your performance. And so I think we've developed, we've seen over the last few years, obviously with Fitbits and wearables, a developing culture of measuring steps, measuring how much you stand up, how much you sit down, how and these things. And I think if sound fits into that framework as just how much exposure to noise noise you have, more's the better i think it will fit i hope like you say that it will slot in quite easily and just become a part of these things that we measure and take notice of and understand how dangerous they are if we're exposed to noise for too long In 2017, you were one of the writers of a study looking at the economic impact of hearing loss and reduction of noise-induced hearing loss in the United States. It estimates that hearing loss affects more than 13% of the working population and that if 20% uh, of hearing loss resulting from excessive noise exposure were prevented, the economic benefit would be substantial with a core estimate of $123 billion. Well, can you please share more on what you learned in that study and can you see measures being taken by industry to mitigate that financial loss? I can't speak for the United Kingdom, but I know here in the United States, whenever public health comes up or, for instance, the impacts of noise on public health, you know, one of the first questions is always, well, how much is this going to cost? Mm -hmm. And as you've said, the, the pollution from noise is invisible. We do perceive it, but it's, it's not visible to us. So in writing this study and several others, we wanted to emphasize there are actual and, and potentially substantial costs to society from noise beyond the annoyance that some of us experience sometimes. So the idea behind this paper was, well, let's figure out what is the economic burden of hearing loss. And when we think about economic burden from hearing loss, probably most of us immediately go to, well, how much does a hearing aid cost? And hearing aids are quite expensive, but there's a pretty robust literature that documents the other impacts of hearing loss on the economy. So for instance, if you're a worker with a hearing loss, you are much more likely to be unemployed 
than a worker with normal hearing. If you're a worker with hearing loss, you are generally paid substantially less per hour than a worker with normal hearing. And so when we start to consider those economic ramifications on the workers from a hearing loss, and you start to talk about wages, even a very small impact per person when you multiply it by 330 million Americans, turns out to be a tremendous financial cost. Now, this study and several others like it are, are just the first pass at this. We need more refined research. We need better data. One of the things that we don't do particularly well here in the United States is even keep track of rates of hearing loss. So there's still some assumptions we've made that need to be confirmed. But that paper, in combination with another one we published around the same time on cardiovascular disease impacts that also showed a burden of billions of dollars per year from heart disease due to noise. So this suggests to me that, you know, in combination with other papers that have looked at the impacts of cardiovascular disease and found them to be also on the order of billions of dollars per year, we've got a real issue here. It's not one we can afford to continue to ignore or um, not act on. At the beginning of your answers to my last question, Rick, you say, well, I can't speak for the UK, but I can speak for the US. And I have a US-centric question, if you like. I'm never one to want to stereotype anything. But one of the things we, if you're flicking through the channels and you come across American TV in the UK, you get monster trucks. And then there's a hockey game. And when someone looks like they're going to score, you hear bam, 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 bam. And you do get a sense with uh, hip hop videos and cars jumping with speakers in them and all these sounds that... To be loud is to be American, to be proud of it. I mean, I, like I say, I don't like to generalize. I know that there's a lot of tree huggers who like to go into the woods and listen to birds too. So let's be even about this. But what would you say to my America is loud claim there? Well, having uh, had the opportunity to travel around the world, I cannot deny to you <laughs> that uh, America is uh, a loud place. It absolutely is. We have sporting competitions where different venues will compete to figure out who's got the noisiest arena. We have competitions where people uh, try to get the most powerful car stereo that they can to the point where you can't even measure the level of the stereo inside the car because it um, basically exceeds the ability of the instrument to measure sound. So we do certainly, I, I would even dare say, fetishize loud sound, <laughs> explosions, gunshots. You know, these things are things we hear in America with unfortunate frequency. Mm. So I think we are a loud country. I don't know that it has to be that way. In fact, I would argue that it doesn't. But one of the reasons it is that way has been basically a failure of our own federal government to regulate noise in a way that would actually protect public health. So if we rewind back to the 1970s, actually once our Congress established the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA then established an Office of Noise Abatement and Control. And that office was empowered by Congress to study and try to regulate and control noise exposures in the United States. Mm -hmm. So between 1971 and 1981, this office was uh, a world leader conducting, you know, cutting edge research on noise and sound and its impact on the public, also passing regulations on a few sort of key noise sources. Unfortunately, when the Reagan administration came into power in 1981, they picked this specific office within EPA out as an 
uh, sort of an example of government overreach. At the time, the EPA was contemplating regulating noise from lawnmowers. And to come back to your earlier comment, mm-hmm. you know, Americans apparently at the time were like, you can't regulate my lawnmower. I need it to be loud. So the Reagan administration <laughs> zeroed out this office in the budget. And this office remains on the books, but has had no staff and no funding for the past 40 years. And as a result, this office that did great science is now, you know, rest in peace, essentially. And we are stuck in a regulatory framework from the 1970s, whereas Western Europe and the European Union have continued on and and quite successfully started to tackle the issues surrounding noise and its impact on health. Well, I know that organisations like Noise Free America are lobbying government again to reinstate that department so that these things can be addressed. It's highly necessary. If I could just add, so there are uh, representatives in our Congress who have lobbied every year to have this office refunded. It's been unsuccessful. But I'll, I'll highlight this kind of void or vacuum at the federal level is really unfortunate in America. Um, perhaps unlike other countries, we have multiple layers of government at local and state and, and national levels. And because this office and its rules exist at the federal level, it's essentially prevented the states and local governments from moving forward forward. So in America, oftentimes cities are considered the the laboratory of democracy. They're a place where interesting experiments can occur with regards, for instance, to regulating public health impacts. But here, the city's hands are tied by this unenforceable federal regulation. I will highlight, though, because I hate to just be uh, uh, sort of uh, focusing on the negative. We have had one tremendous success story in the United States that's actually impacted the whole world. Our Federal Aviation Administration recognized in the 1970s and 80s that the increase in air traffic and passenger aircraft travel was really tremendously annoying to our population, uh, to the point where the FAA stepped in and told aircraft manufacturers, you need to make quieter planes. And if you don't make quieter planes, your planes are not going to be able to fly in the United States. So Boeing and other manufacturers had a a great uh, cry and outroar, claimed that they were going to be put out of business, and then they fixed the problem. They came up with technological innovations. And we've got 90% fewer Americans today exposed to high levels of aircraft noise than we did in 1980. So this is a case where our government did, in fact, step in. They, They put into place some technology forcing regulations and it's resulted in a tremendous improvement in quality of life for America and for every other country that flies American-produced aircraft. Well, that is a wonderful outcome. You know, listening to what you're saying there, it's great to have that uh, as a, that highlights an excellent example of there is a solution to these things, you know. And um, interestingly, something that on one of our previous episodes, Rick, on the Quiet Mark podcast has been with Matthew Herbert, who's the creative director at the BBC Radiophonic Sound Workshop. And he uh, organised uh, with Radiophonic Workshop a couple of years ago, the Sound of the Year Awards, of which um, Quiet Mark is an official partner. And it seems like an awards that needs to roll out to America. It kind of recognises innovation in reduction of sound in so many different categories and uh, I think it's something that needs to find its way to American shores soon. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I'm so pleased to hear about groups like Quiet Mark and, and other groups that are advocating for lower noise solutions. I, I think there's great evidence that they actually work and I think the more they penetrate and, and start to influence the American market, the better off Americans are going to be from a, a health and quality of life So I hope that these efforts continue and and sort of amplify on each other. 
You know, on the Quiet Mark podcast, we've often spoken about how a silencing of the world during the first lockdowns with the halting of air travel, road traffic and construction reduced noise by up to 50%. And it's helped to restore the value of quiet back into society. And it's also reconnected us with the soothing sounds of nature. There's lots of reports in uh, newspapers over here about birdsong can help reduce stress, for example. So in your role as full professor of environmental health sciences and global public health at University of Michigan, what effects of the pandemic on our relationship with noise do you think have been most interesting and significant since the pandemic? It's a great question, and I will just come back to the Apple Hearing Study that I mentioned earlier. So we launched the Apple Hearing Study in November 2019, and we were one of the very first groups to publish study on the impacts of noise in America, and specifically on noise exposures. And we were one of the first, again, to report this 50% reduction uh, across the nation in noise exposures. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so sort of the distinction I'll make between a lot of work that was done around the world and what we did. So many of the studies that showed an, uh, a reduction in noise exposure with the pandemic lockdowns were based on measurements made in city centers uh, or along roadways, sort of uh, area measurements as we call them, whereas our Apple hearing study data were on people. Right. So it's one thing to know that the city center became quieter, but if I don't go to the city center, you know, how does that impact me? So I think these um, mm. data points are all very complementary. So we saw areas get quieter, but we also saw people's lives get quieter when we, we track them at an individual level. And I absolutely agree with you. You know, as the world got quieter, I think there was an opportunity to reconnect with nature. There's a, a, a fairly large body of uh, literature in the public health domain linking, for instance, access to green space, and as you say, sounds of nature, increasing access to those things actually being associated with better health outcomes. So I love the idea of our population having an opportunity to reconnect with a quieter environment and start to appreciate what is normally overwhelmed by the sounds of daily life. I've read reports in UK press that suggests that the loudest areas to live in London, where I live, are often the poorest areas and therefore, you know, the most exposure to noise pollution and suffering from it is in the lower economic demographics. Do you think the same applies in the US? So as is often the case in the U.S., we don't necessarily have sufficient data to answer that question. Interestingly, there's pretty compelling studies now that link uh, lower income and marginalized communities to higher levels of air pollution and water pollution. Mm -hmm. My study team is actually doing this right now, uh, sort of results TBD, but the preliminary results that we're getting indicate that, in fact, the, the pattern you describe in the UK is very much the case here in the United States, where lower income, marginalized and minority communities, their levels of community noise. And the thing we're finding now is those communities also appear to have higher levels of noise in the workplace. So you might imagine people who are in some of the lowest income jobs are working in pretty harsh conditions and those uh, jobs tend to have higher noise. Mm. So in addition to the unavoidable noise that these people have in their communities and in their homes, they may be getting a double whammy with their very noisy jobs. So this represents certainly environmental injustice to these communities, but there's also a, an element of workplace injustice. And so I think for us to continue to ignore this is just to continue to put these marginalized communities at, at greater risk than the rest of the public, which is ethically and morally unacceptable, of course. 
What is it about areas of lower income that make them noisier? Is it how close they are to the freeway, railway tracks? Is it that their housing is built cheaper so it's less insulated from noise? What's going on there? So I I can't speak for the UK, but in the United States, we have a a tragic history of what we call environmental racism here uh, that absolutely extends to noise. So when we think about major transportation modes, you know, expressways, uh, railways, airport siting, those things have typically been put in areas that are lower income or um, minority communities or both. So that certainly has contributed to those communities having more noise exposure than the general population. Uh, As you mentioned, people who fit those demographics also tend to have housing that's of a lower standard uh, or construction quality. And so even if they they're not especially close to a, a source of noise, like an airport, their home is blocking less of the external sound um, than a, a better constructed home might. And so I think all of those things contribute to this unfortunate situation that we have where our most vulnerable uh, residents in the United States, um, vulnerable from an economic perspective and from a, a social perspective, are also experiencing these outsized exposures and impacts uh, from noise. So it's a, a morally and, and ethically unacceptable situation. And one that, as I mentioned, we're trying to study and, and start to rectify. Rick, in the UK, QuietMark has retail partnerships. So when you go to some of our biggest retailers' websites like Argos or Curry's or John Lewis, which are visited by millions of UK shoppers, there's a real presence of the QuietMark logo throughout those websites. And we hear from those retailers that they're seeing increasing, if you like, quiet clicks. You can filter in the left-hand menu, navigation menu, for QuietMark certified products. We put a lot of materials out into the press, press releases, educating uh, consumers that in order to optimize acoustic comfort, you need to take a two-pronged approach. Reduce the noise of things that make a noise in your home, that dishwasher, that fridge, that kettle, for example, but also introduce more materials which absorb sound. So orchestrate your soundscape is kind of a a phrase, a mantra that we put out in our press releases. And we do that also in America, but we are certainly seeing, as I say, in the UK, consumers really wise up to, if I'm gonna put something in my open plan kitchen, I wanna make sure it's quiet. What is the role of consumers in America and their awareness, do you think, in terms of I better choose quieter stuff to have a happier, healthier life? So uh, I can't speak for every American, of course, but the Americans I do know, I think the perception is often that quieter products are much more expensive. They're very high end. They're unobtainable or out of reach for many folks. And that's very unfortunate because, you know, like any other type of pollution, we should all have equal access to opportunities to reduce that. So I don't think we have the same awareness in the U.S. that you have in the U.K., but I very much welcome Quiet Mark's efforts to, you know, continue to educate the public on that front. I will submit that ultimately the solution to high noise exposures lies not with the consumers, but with manufacturers. They are the ones who can produce quieter products, but they're not going to do that unless they see one of two things. One is consumer demand, which QuietMark is driving. The other is government regulation requiring those quieter products. Now, I think either of those things can help move the dial, but I think to have a a truly successful reduction in uh, noise exposure and public health impacts, we need to have that, that consumer pressure on manufacturers. I want to have 
affordable, quiet products. And we need to have a government that's not afraid to step in and, and regulate, especially some of these sort of egregiously loud products. So as consumers, our job should be to lobby these manufacturers for quieter products and to lobby our elected officials to uh, also put pressure on them from a regulatory side. That's a great answer. And in fact, you know, in the UK, we ran a poll of 2000 UK adults and we found that 82 percent, so over four fifths, said that they would like quieter appliances in their home. And 70 percent said they would be if they were given the choice between two products and one was labeled as quiet, which is what the quiet mark shows, and the other one didn't reference its sound performance, they're more likely to choose the quieter product. So we've done polls in the US and hopefully manufacturers in the US will sort of sit up and pay attention to that because there really is consumer demand. And like I say, especially since the quieting of the world in lockdowns. Rick, again, thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule to talk to us on the Quiet Mark podcast today. It's been fascinating and full of insights and we really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you. It's been a tremendous pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this important issue and I applaud Quiet Mark's efforts to help us all get a quieter and, and healthier world. Oh, that's really kind of you. Well, have a good rest of the day and you take care. Bye-bye.